You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Justice is Served here on Black Hollywood Live, where we bring you the latest in uh, trending legal news uh, on a weekly basis. My name is Sarah Azari. I'm a criminal defense attorney and one of the three hosts of this show, and I'm joined today by my co-host, attorney Chelsea Galicia. Hey, Chelsea. Hi there. All right, so um, before we kick off the show, I just want to remind our viewers to uh, stay with us throughout the show as we're going to cover the FIFA soccer corruption scandal um, that broke out last week with the arrest of the executives, the trial of the Colorado theater shooter, uh, the latest Supreme Court ruling regarding threats on social media, as well as a discussion on whether meditation can help with racial bias. So um, let's get started, Chelsea, with our case of the week, um, which is about the largest international white-collar case uh, involving corruption and bribery um, underway as 14 top executives in the soccer world have been arrested on a 47-count indictment pending in the U.S. District Court for the District of Brooklyn. Um, The facts are... um, rather uh, lengthy in that this has been going on for so long in the soccer world, apparently as as uh, far back as like the early 90s. Um, these, um, the, What's interesting about this case is the case started out with a tax evasion investigation of um, Charles Blazer, who um, is one of these top executives. He was the, uh, I believe, the um, president of the of FIFA at some point. Um, no, I'm sorry. He wasn't the president of FIFA. He was the another organization. That's yeah, under another it. soccer organization, and he, he's the largest American name um, in the soccer world. And um, this is a guy who you know was spending sixty six hundred dollars uh, a month on rent for an apartment in the Trump Towers for his cats. He drove extremely nice cars, uh, luxury cars, um, ate at the best restaurants, owned a lot of different homes and properties all over the world, and um, and essentially never filed taxes and. Forget about paying his taxes. He never actually filed his returns. So um, uh, one of the IRS agents here in Los Angeles started investigating him back in, I think, 2011. And this led into um, finding out about this tremendous corruption with briberies that was going on in um, in FIFA, which is the International Federation of um, uh, the, the Football Association, which is soccer, um, not American football. And so, Chelsea, so what happens is um, an FBI agent and an IRS agent follow Charles Blazer in New York in 2011, um, and they basically pull him over and they say, look, you either cooperate with the government in this investigation of, um, uh, you know, corruption, or you're going to go to jail. Right this minute. Right this minute, yeah. yeah. And so what happened was there was already an indictment against him. And uh, actually in 2013, he pled guilty on that indictment, and he turned into a 
wire-wearing informant who worked for these agents and essentially recorded a lot of private meetings between these executives where some very shady deals were made. Um, and as a result, the U.S. government has now been able to indict several more individuals, and I think there's more coming. So one of the first things I wanted to ask you, um, Chelsea, for us to discuss is um, what do you think about um, the um, – the $10 million bribery scheme. There's, this is that the crux of this corruption case is that there was a $10 million wire, um, to, uh, that, that South Africa sent to, uh, FIFA, um, and that this was essentially to buy the bid for the 2010 World Cup to take place in South Africa. What do you think about this? Um, I don't, I don't think it was surprising. To me, mm-hmm. I, and I think that even though this may have started as an IRS investigation, it is a little interesting that the two biggest consequences for the soccer world at large, not just these individuals, is uh, that the uh, World Cup isn't going to be held in Qatar mm-hmm. in 2022, and they're thinking maybe they're trying to pull it from Russia. Uh, they're supposed to be the the next hosts, mm-hmm. uh, and that it might be politically motivated because, mm-hmm. in reality, a $10 million bribery scheme isn't that much when we look at some of the... Well, if you know about some of the cases that are, are going on in this country, it doesn't seem that outlandish. I, I, I kind of would be surprised if they didn't find something like this going on. Um, are you saying that the bribe itself is not a lot of money? Or are you saying that the, the that you're not surprised that there was a bribery? Both. Okay. Uh, I think a bribe is a lot of money. I mean but but this, I mean when you for for you and I ten million dollars, right. sure. But it's like the size of the entity. Like when we talked about the NFL and the settlement right. that they have to pay out for these concussions Nearly a billion dollars in settlement sounds like a lot of money, except when you look at the revenue right. of the NFL and they're at $10 billion a year. And you're year. talking about the revenue of FIFA? Right, and what they okay. make, the sponsorships, the but partnerships. Here's the problem. But here's, here's where I take issue, or I take the other side of that, which is, um, you know, the, there was three wire transfers made um, in January, between January and March of 2008, that amounted to this $10 million. The um, allegations of the, the prosecution in this case, and this is what their investigation shows, is that um, there was a meeting in 2000 and, I believe, seven or eight, where they discussed, uh, you know, South Africa getting their votes to, to be the host of the 2010 World Cup and in exchange for this $10 million. But South Africa then couldn't come up with the money. So instead, what they did was they told FIFA, South Africa, South African uh, executives of their soccer federation, told FIFA, hey, listen, um, instead of sending us money for, you know, for the 2010 World Cup, which, you know, they had already won the bid, right? They'd, or they'd already been declared the host. Why don't you just uh, set, give it over to um, Mr. Jack Warner, who was another executive, Chuck Blazer, and the executives who were involved in this bribery scheme. So, yeah, if the money actually went to FIFA, I would agree with you, but the money ended up in the pockets of these executives. executives. Um, and so, the, essentially, the prosecution is saying the bribe was paid on the back end of the deal. Um, so, it was paid by FIFA 
to these executives instead of paying South Africa for what they owed them for the fund, for the soccer fund. Yeah. So I think it is a lot of money. And I think these, these people have been doing this. You know, um, Chuck Blazer, uh, actually today it came out that um, in 2013 when he pled guilty um, to bribery, tax evasion, uh, money laundering, etc., he, um, as part of his factual basis in his plea, plea agreement, actually confessed to additional instances of bribery, bribery, sorry, um, sometime in like 1992. So, this is a hundred, I believe it's a hundred and fifteen million or fifty, hundred and fifty million dollar case of bribes. When you look at it all together, it right. looks yeah. pretty massive. And so yeah. it's not just the ten million, all the ten yeah. million was a big deal. And so one of the things that Sepp Blatter, who's the um now former former president, um, president who just resigned yesterday, um or, well, I don't did, know if we can call it a full resignation because he hasn't stepped down yet. Just said that he will as soon he as will. replacement. Yeah, he's that because for, uh, the the law enforcement officials finally made it clear that he is a target. They are looking at him. They hadn't made it clear before, which I'm like, how could he not be? He's so close to this, you know. And and also the indictment names and. Um, Unidentified, uh, uh, you know, uh, executive, a high high echelon executive, but not by name. And there's been questions whether that's Blatter. And Blatter says, of course, it's not me. You know, this is all uh, based on a motive by the U.S. because they're pissed off that, that they didn't get the bid. And you know, it's it's not. This is about. It's not about soccer. It's not about the bid. It's about corruption. And this is a huge, you know, an agents, um, IRS agents who routinely work on tax evasion cases suddenly stumble upon this huge international case. Yeah, when I it's first, exciting. When I first heard about it, I didn't know if it was such a oh the IRS just stumbled on it. I wondered if it was politically motivated. At first I wondered why the heck is the FBI so involved in this? FIFA mm-hmm. is headquartered in Switzerland. Don't you know what laws are they have they signed themselves up for? Do they have an internal uh sort of police force. Mm-hmm. I Before this, I did not look much into FIFA, so I didn't mm-hmm. know how the operation was run. So I was like, why is the FBI spending so much time and our tax dollars on some soccer thing? And now, I, I mean, I get it. There's a lot that uh, has to do with U.S. sponsors, companies, sure. the banking also system. The ba- no, the ba- U.S. banks were used for some of these shady transactions, so that gives the U.S. jurisdiction to go after Which, these people. So it's good, it's good reason for them to go after them, but I don't know if that's what motivates this in the first place. It just seems a little interesting, I guess is the word, that, um, you know, Russia is up next and the U.S. is uh, experiencing very strained relations uh, with Russia. So I don't know if it's so much about Could that be. we didn't get it, but that we don't Could like be, who's you know getting there's it. Been, there's been allegations about the soccer world being corrupt and these bids being given to con- countries. Basically, these are bought out bids for a long, long time. And so finally, I think, you know, it's like kudos to the United States for doing something about this. Although you know? I, I, and I hope that people think that, but then I can imagine a lot of people are like, the U.S. is the corruption police of the world. Come mm-hmm. on, give me a break. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people People are saying well, that we need to clean up our own home before we start going to clean up the world. Right. Uh, and so I can see but, both but, perspectives. But you know what? The government makes a lot of money because a lot of these corruption cases are settled by, uh, by you know, like FIFA is not an individual. So FIFA is not going to do time yeah. in jail. But FIFA is going to enter into a plea agreement with the government where they pay uh, a pretty penny. I for- hope so. But in a lot of white-collar c- cases mm-hmm. that I see, I always 
feel like the the companies never pay close to what the damages are right. that they cause. Well, in corruption cases, though, it's it, you're talking about a whole other... I mean, there's a whole area of the law um, under the Foreign Corruptions Practice Act, you know, where there's there's so much going on in Brazil with Petrobras and the oil industry and the... the um, any any small contact with the U.S. gives the U.S. jurisdiction. And, um, in fact, I wish I could practice that kind of law more than, you know, what I'm doing running around to courts because it's such a lucrative area of white collar defense you're basically doing investigations of you know where these bribes and gifts were were handed out and and essentially it's a straight plea it's not at all you know these cases don't go to trial um and so but bladder interestingly was saying that um he was saying that uh or that the issue around that unnamed executive is that uh did he actually know that the transaction he caused to be made, the, the bribe, so to speak, was a bribe, that that money was a bribe. And again, I think he was just too close to this these people and this organization and the money not to have known what's I, happening. I think he's been involved in the organization. Years. Right. For, he's 79 years old. Right. Yeah. So right. Uh, it would be virtually impossible to believe that he didn't know what was going on and the rules of the right. game. And suddenly, and imagine last Friday, he said... I will be in command of this boat called FIFA, and we will bring it back to shore. And then suddenly, fast forward four days to Tuesday, he's like, uh, I'm going to be leaving. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, the last issue I think that's interesting in this case is whether these people are actually going to make it to court in Brooklyn. And they will, I think, in a few months, because extradition actually, um, I think they're going to fight extradition. But um, in these cases, when there is a... um, a law in the foreign country that is also that also makes that conduct illegal, um, which clearly they have money laundering and and tax evasion and um, you know bribery laws there. Then they the officials will cooperate and ship the people over to the U.S. So it'll be interesting to see the outcome of this. I think um, people that are really involved in sports and soccer are are happy to see that something's being done in in this because. It was something that was that was smelling fishy for a long time. Yeah. Anyway, turning it over to Chelsea for On the Docket, and actually um, a, spe- a special message we have for our viewers today before we proceed with the rest of the show. Yes, we got a little favor to ask you. I don't actually know if it's a favor that we're asking you. Maybe we're asking you to help us make this more informative and uh, educational and entertaining. So we would like you to take a survey. Uh, to take that survey, please go to podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. It'll take all of like three minutes for you to tell us how we're doing, how we can make things better around here, for us to get to know you. So we would really like to hear from you. We already love your tweets and comments, but this is one other way for you to interact with us and to give us your feedback. And is that podcast, like, can can we spell it so that they don't think it's a number? (laughs) Oh, yeah, good point. P-O-D-C-A-S-T-1, as in spelled out, O-N-E, dot com. Cool? All right. Hopefully, we get lots and lots of your feedback. We're looking forward to it. And in the meantime, we will turn uh, our attention to the uh, the case of the uh, Aurora Theater shooter. So you'll remember back in 2012 uh, in Aurora, Colorado, uh, a shooter, a mass shooter, just broke out uh, during the screening of uh, Black Knight Rising. It's a Batman movie. Batman, yes. yes. And, uh, and killed 12 people. And so we are now in a about the 25th day of trial where the shooter, James Holmes, has uh, pled guilty by reason 
or pled not guilty by mm-hmm. reason of insanity. So no one disputes that he was the gunman, mm-hmm. but he is uh, making a case that he was insane at the time that he uh, pulled the trigger, and that is why he should spend the rest of his life in a hospital mental institution rather than face the death penalty mm-hmm. as the prosecutors are, are, are seeking. And aren't there like 166 charges against him or something it, crazy like that? A lot, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the most serious are for the deaths of the 12 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's been really fascinating about this case, because the issue is just so narrow, whether whether he's insane, mm-hmm. um, has it, been you know looking at how he appears, how he presents himself mm-hmm. in court, uh, about the interviews that he's had over 22 hours with a p- court-appointed psychiatrist, mm-hmm. where it, he makes it sound like, he thought that by killing these people, he would somehow be absorbing or inheriting their self-worth. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it's a unit per person killed, or something like that. He says. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. He he said that he um, was trying to get himself out of a funk. I probably more than a funk, a, a, a depression mm-hmm. that he either needed to kill somebody else or kill himself. Um, he was telling the psychiatrist. Um, well, he did not tell the psychiatrist of any explicit plans, mm-hmm. um, but did say that um, the medication, this is really um, fascinating to me. He was prescribed a medication by a psychiatrist that he was seeing at the time. Mm-hmm. And he said that that made him suicidal and homicidal. So I don't, it's a little bit of trying to blame something else, but mm-hmm. I'm, wondering well, maybe there's something to it because this mm-hmm. isn't the first time that I've heard someone say mm-hmm. or we've seen somebody kill themselves or other people while being on psychotropic mm-hmm. medication. It takes the wrong medication or the wrong dosage and that's or it. I, I don't know if or if that or if this is a I don't know if you can really call it a side effect or an effect of, of some of this this medication. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there is so much to talk about in this um, mm-hmm. th- this case. The first thing I wanted to ask you about was his presentation because we've seen uh, different pictures of him come out of court over the the time that he has been there, looking quite differently in mm-hmm. different pictures. And I wanted to ask you if you thought that there was any rhyme or reason to the different look that he's been presenting in I court. think so. I think, um, you know, what, what the defense, the, the, the defense case here is that he has severe schizophrenia and most importantly that he has a distorted sense of wrong from right. And of course the pros- prosecution is saying he might have some kind of mental illness, but he absolutely knows what is wrong and what is right and what is the, con- what are the consequences of his wrong behavior. And so what the, um, um, what the defense attorneys have done, I mean, I think what the viewers can see now is, is, is he's in court with this fiery red hair with crazy eyes, and this was much earlier on in his case, and suddenly now, um, during his trial, uh, you know, he, he looks a lot better. He's got still facial- with the crazy eyes. Well, yeah, but I think he looks more, um, he looks more sedated. <laughs> he looks, you know, he's subdued, got, yes, yeah, for more sure. subdued. And, um, and I think that's, um, that is exactly what I would do with a client in a situation because, you know, at trial, you're trying to show the jury that this person 
was mentally ill to the point of not knowing right from wrong and insane, legally insane at the time of the incident. And now as a result of treatment and addressing the problem, he has been able to be the person he is before the jury, remorseful, um, you know, and, and, and obviously they're looking at him the whole time and, and, and it has to match up with whatever the defense attorneys are trying to. So you the, think it's in there? It's in his interest for his absolutely. attorneys to make him look a- absolutely more because you know now. what you want to do is as attorney you want to you want to separate the normal him from the mentally ill him. You want to say he was this person with the red hair and the crazy eyes, but look at who he is now, and that's a sign that he uh, he has a mental illness. That was the mentally ill James Holmes. He's not that way. He needs treatment. Therefore, he needs to be sentenced to a treatment facility. So he can continue to get trained. You know, one of the things, Chelsea, about mental illness, I think we, um, all of us, I think, have a very um, difficult time empathizing and understanding mental illness. I think we expect the mentally ill people to take their medication, go to their counseling sessions, get well, get better, get a job, you know, get with it. And we don't understand that there's this deep-rooted um, struggle that these individuals have between breaking free from the disease and then them getting pulled into and seduced by that evil of the disease, which may very well include going to a theater and committing this heinous massacre. And so, you know, what the defense attorneys are doing, they're, they're saying that is who he was because he was he was insane. Well, you know? I, I think more people have actually experienced some form of mental illness or know somebody who has and would say, but that person is not going to show up in a movie theater and, and and try and kill everybody in sight. There, there was some planning that occurred here. Mm-hmm. So this wasn't just some momentary loss of of touch with reality. I mean, he he thought about this. He planned it. Uh, and it's just it's not some some disconnect with with reality where he would be uh, not liable or, or not responsible or we can't hold him responsible for it. Mental illness doesn't mean that you are a completely deranged person. Right. Mental illness shows up in many different ways. But there's still mental illness also doesn't mean legal insanity. Mental illness has to be such that you can't appreciate right from wrong for it to be legal. Where I was about to get to is that even if you are mentally ill, you can still know right from wrong, and that's the prosecution saying. And so I, 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 I I think that the defense it feels like they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. They actually haven't spoken at all. We're still on the prosecution's case right now, but. If if it's true that they're trying to present a a normal you know non mentally ill person now well that doesn't make sense it was just uh, momentary and then he just happened to shoot back then and all of a sudden he's he's cured now no it's now. not momentary because you actually if you look at evidence number P-TR-341 which is a brown spiral notebook that was um essentially a Holmes's notebook um uh, it, it 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 is it is a uh, a compilation of musings of a um you know of of a killer um and it's the prosecutors using it to to their advantage i think it's a very good piece of evidence for the prosecution but the jurors have a copy of this entire notebook. So while the prosecutor has had elicited testimony from one of the investigating officers about very specific parts of the notebook that are really damning to Holmes and show that he, he premeditated, show that he was, you know, he he went to the extent of visiting 
theaters and and looking at the proximity between the theater and the parking lot to see which one is better for him. He looked at you know the show times to see where he can you know hopefully miss some children, maybe go to a later show so the children don't get killed because he called that a collateral side effect that he was trying to avoid. Um, and, you know he looked at um, he the, talked about he talked about in this notebook about um, serial killing, too much contact with victims. No. Bombs are too well regulated. No. Upshot. Mass murder spree. Check mark. I mean, this is really bad for him. But the de- like you said, the defense hasn't gotten to it. The defense is going to explore all the other parts of this notebook that are actually that are actually indicative of the fact that this guy was mentally out there. I, I I can pretty much say maybe not know the uh, difference between right and wrong because at some point he talks about the other person that he is and then the biological me. He talks about the, the um, uh, I can't remember what exactly the, the quote was, but it, he talks about, you know, the biological me versus this other me. I think a lot of us have that. It's called like an ego or it's called, you know, the voice of angel, devil, your mother, I mean, whatever, but we don't kill people from it. I, I, it just, it, it seems to me, based on everything that's been presented in the uh, interviews that he's had with the psychiatrist, he, he talks about the medication made him do this, or he wishes that the psychiatrist would have uh, sort of locked him up on a 5150, that maybe if the psychiatrist had I don't know if he used these words exactly, but essentially done her job correctly, right. he wouldn't have been able to do this. So it mm-hmm. seems a lot of finger pointing outwards to me. And uh, Well, he had a to-do list, which was kind of interesting to me. He said, uh, buy stun gun and folding knife, research firearm laws and mental illness, buy handgun, remote de- detonation equipment and body armor, and practice shooting at the range. Um, right. he was yeah, in, in the same notebook is where he wrote about this medication that he was on, sertraline, uh, that uh, he said it washed away his fears and unleashed his own dislike of others. He said, no more fear, hatred unchecked. And right. that... That's that's frightening of him as an individual. And it's also frightening of effect of a medication. I mm-hmm. hope somebody's investigating the effects of these medications because if these medications have anything to do with helping people feel this way, we should probably look at oh I don't know changing the medication or taking it off the market. Um, this is I'm sorry I just I just realized where he he says. Um, the real me is fighting for the biological me. That's the struggle of someone with mental illness. Um, again, I think uh, what our viewers should note as this trial unfolds is that um, nobody's questioning his mental illness. Clearly, he's not at all all there. I think the issue boils down to whether the jury's going to be swayed that on July 20th of 2012, he was that mentally ill not to appreciate the, the consequences of his actions and the fact that what he was doing was against the law and it was wrong. Um, I, I haven't heard anything in the in the interviews with saying anything no, about... No, actually, in fact, the psycho- psychiatrist said that he believes that he's remorseful today, but that he, he believes that he, was, he had full capacity to deliberate um, between right and wrong and then act on it on July 20th of 2012. Yeah, anyway. so we'll see if the uh, jury agrees with us. Um, well, do, am I understanding you correctly that you think he was not insane at the time that he pulled the trigger? I, you know, I, it's hard to tell that the, the, the journal is so, uh, you know, at some points I think, wow, you know, he really may not have been able to 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 know right from wrong. He was just so out there. And then there's things I stumble upon in the journal that I read 
that sway me the other way. So it, it'll be interesting to see what the defense case um, proves. Can I say something to this, too? Yeah, absolutely. I know I'm not exactly a lawyer. Uh, I just think it's interesting, though, that if, if you if you take the act, the simple act of a guy goes in, grabs guns, and goes into a movie theater and shoots the place up. Mm-hmm. I mean, automatically, that is some sort of insanity right there. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if any person does that, and especially if it's premeditated like this, you could argue insanity for literally any murderer right. everywhere. Mm-hmm. I, the law still needs to apply. Right, of course. And that's why there's a definition of legal sanity versus just sanity, insanity. Right. And legal think, insanity versus yeah. just insanity. Because any murderer, I think, is insane to a certain extent. But even going to the drugs and saying that, um, for instance, if his if he was under the influence of mm-hmm. drugs, which was pushing to him, to him mentally to a place of legal insanity or whatever mm-hmm. the term is, right? Um, how is that any different from somebody getting drunk and killing their wife while they're drunk, they're still arrested for murder. Right, because we hold them responsible for taking the drink. Exactly, right. yes. and he's responsible for taking these drugs. This is a man who went into a movie theater and shot up the place and killed multiple people. It's yeah. one of the worst massacres in American history. I don't yeah. even think this guy deserves a trial, and I know I, I understand that's the, that's the law, and yeah, right. this is the legal show, and he does, let me take that back, he does deserve a trial. But to plead insanity on something that is so premeditated, I find it preposterous. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think he was insane, and I... You know, we'll see if, if the jury but, agrees you know, with, with Stephen Everyone deserves and I. a defense, um, a full defense. And Spoken like a true defense attorney. When, when yeah. you look at when you look at this guy, what else could you possibly say? You can't say it wasn't my client there. You can't say he didn't do it, or you can't say it was an accident. So you got to look at what you have to work with, and it's basically Anything. his mental illness. Yeah. You know. So yeah. anyway. Okay, well, um, would have been interesting if he would have posted something on Facebook before he did this. Takes us right into our next <laughs> story. the only thing he didn't do. Right? Right? <laughs> um, so about six months ago now, we covered the story um, that the Supreme Court was, was hearing a, a case about a guy who poetically or lyrically wrote this rant on uh, his own Facebook wall about his ex-wife. Uh, saying things like, there's uh, one way to love you, maybe a thousand ways to kill you. First of all, dude, there's not one way to love somebody. Read The Five Love Languages by <laughs> Gary Chapman. It'll change your life. But anyways, talking, you know, the part about a thousand ways to, to kill you, the the ex-wife, you know, saw it and perceived it as a threat. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he was uh, initially uh, convicted and then case goes up to the Supreme Court and they say, actually, not so much mm-hmm. um, because of an intent issue. So mm-hmm. what what does that that mean, Sarah, about his in, intent um, lacking and that he shouldn't right. have been convicted? Because, Chelsea, when this case was being heard or uh, right before the ruling actually came out on Monday, everyone was hopeful that finally, for the first time, the Supreme Court's going to rule on First Amendment within social media, that context of social media. Um, however, it didn't turn out to be like that at all. The Supreme Court did not at all touch upon the First Amendment issue, and they stuck to this intent issue, sending the case back, reversing the conviction. This was a 44-month sentence. The guy only did three years. He's now out because of the reversal of his conviction. And they basically told the lower court, you guys cannot apply the reasonable person standard. You can't just look at the, the words and say whether a reasonable listener would take this to be a threat, and if they did, then uh, you can convict the person. You need to look at the intent. You need some evidence of intent. And so one of the things I wanted to discuss with you is all the possibilities. I mean, here this is an Eminem uh, lyric in quotes. 
on his uh, wall, I guess, the Facebook wall. Was it actually an Eminem lyric, or he just said he was inspired by? I think it's part of a song. And then Justice Chief Justice Roberts, this I thought was really cool, he started regurgitating the lyrics, and oh, he God. said, wait a minute, to the lawyers, he goes, wait a minute, so you're telling me if Eminem is in, con- is in concert and says this stuff on stage, it's cool, but this guy gets convicted because it's on his Facebook? And I think it's, I think the Supreme Court ruling was really narrow, um, not really broad, because Chief Justice Roberts actually reiterated that, look, if we find any evidence of intent, yeah. we're going to we're going to take this to be a threat, which does not deserve First Amendment protection. And I think this is what I was going to ask you, Chelsea, is these are some of the challenges, I think, that we face with social media and now the crime scene being the Internet, which is just, you know, we're, we're, it's constantly changing and we have to sort of figure out all the intricacies of this crime scene, you know, and. What, like, what happens if this same uh, quote was sent in a Facebook message to the wife? Or what if she was tagged in this post? Or what if her picture a- accompanied this post? Would that then show intent? Well, I mean, I, w- I wish because it's it's meant to instill fear in that person when right. they're tagged or when it's sent to them. And so... And, and public service announcement, uh, you know, block and unfriend your ex-wife and your ex-girlfriend, okay? And then say whatever the hell you want to say about them on Facebook, but don't have them on there looking, you know? Right. And and also, I, I, to the point that you made earlier, this, this ruling was pretty narrow. It was about the stand that he was used, um, he was convicted on, right. uh, not the First Amendment. So we can't run around now saying that we have the First Amendment right to say anything we want on Facebook, including mm-hmm. uh, threats to people, mm-hmm. because that's still not protected, and that's not what the what the court said. Also, but, also, the court was vague about what intent is. It recklessness? Is it uh, how it's conceived? At whether the intent is actually conceived and imminent, they're really they left everybody kind of in limbo. They really didn't go there. Well, the dissenting, well, there were there were two dissenting opinions, and mm-hmm. one of them sort of agreed in part and dissented in part. And the the part where he dissented said, no, there was actually evidence presented that he went out of his way to make sure that she saw it. Right, and that's what kind of fascinated me. Like, oh, really? So then, how is that not intent? Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was missed by the other justices or it wasn't sufficient mm-hmm. for the other justices to pick up on. But uh, I, I hope this is very, very and he narrow. Also, uh, he also made the same threat. It was addressed to her uh, or implicated her um, and a federal, um, um, I, I think, federal agents as well as uh, a kindergarten nearby. And so that's why this ended up in federal court, I think. I mean, even though he's using the Internet and that makes it a federal case because he's using the wires. But uh, but I think it was more so because government agents were also threatened or felt threatened. But you know what? Here's the thing. The domestic violence advocates and victim advocates are saying um, this is crazy. This now opens the door to people making freely making threats just because, you know, right. they can't. When the government gets threatened, I mean, we spring into action. I mean, just today or yesterday, somebody in Boston was, was shot in and killed as they were planning to attack the police. Mm-hmm. I mean, so th- this uh, one day, not so far in the future, we're going to to get something more clear where the Supreme Court ju- does rule on the First Amendment part of this. Yeah, but, but meanwhile, threats- you can't have teenagers who are just, you know, saying crap or, you know, uh, on, on, on their social media. You can't have these parents have their kids subjected to uh, felonies for making threats on Facebook. So there's this, there's well, definitely this counter I, I don't you know? actually agree with that. I mean, I, I think 
kids, I mean, we, we don't hold them to the same standard as adults. We don't, you can't uh, in this country by the current constitution or the, the Supreme Court hasn't overruled a prior ruling that you we can't put to, to death uh, a person that was under the age of 18 mm-hmm. when they committed murder. But if, if I threaten somebody on, on Facebook, I'm going to kill you. It no, doesn't matter course, if I'm 13 or 30. No, I'm not, I'm not talking about the age. What I'm talking about is, is that, uh, y- you know, youth being so much more involved with social media and communicating on social media. They need to get responsible I, real fast. I don't think that they get a pass but, just because but they're Chelsea, young. you can't just put away people just because of the listener's well, perception of whether they're threatened or not. What if I don't I don't like you and I just go out and say, I felt threatened by what you said. I can't put you away just I, because I feel that way about you. But There's, there is some element. I don't think that no, the reasonable standard the intent- interpretation should be done away with altogether. It should be a reasonable person would think that they they are threatened. Somebody tried to defend this decision by saying, yeah, there's so many misunderstandings on social no, I media. Think, I, think are- you, I think you can arrive at the justified conviction by having the standard of, it, it's not very clear what it is, but it's a, sta- it's a subjective standard. It's not reasonable person. Because you know what? If there's threats before, if, uh, if it's in a message on Facebook, all of these pieces of evidence make it intentional. So why not have subjective intent? I mean, I, th- I don't think it's that hard to prove. If it's I, I there, it then is. I think the person deserves to get you know put a, get put away. But if if there if it's not there, I think we're risking um, listeners who are just overly sensitive say that they they felt threatened by this, and then someone goes away when the you but know overly sensitive wouldn't be, hold up on the the reasonable. The person and yeah, okay, fine. Reasonable person plus some intent, fine. But it, we're this this line of do you have a right? Do you have a stronger right to s- express how you feel, even though that might be tor- exhibiting violence towards me? Or do I have a right to to feel safe that I'm not under attack emotionally, physically? I I I think that I I want you to express yourself freely. Maybe to Get a psychiatrist. Get off my Facebook. Don't read it. <laughs> but it, but if he was the one that was trying to make her right. see of it. Of course, of course. But obviously there was no other evidence of intent. Or I can guarantee you Scalia, for one, Justice Scalia, would be right there writing the opinion um, for the majority saying that this guy is is, is violent. He's He's got to, you know. Yeah. Um, anyway. There, there should be a, a, a limit, I think, sometime soon. We'll, we'll get to that All limit. Right. But. We're going to um, tip the scale. We're going to tip the scale. Um, and, and today we want to talk to you about, um, a woman, a professor McGee up north in San Francisco who, um, is a very petite African American woman who lives in a very posh part of San Francisco called Pacific Heights, I believe. And, uh, on a Saturday when she's, you know, rolling around in her little Lululemon whatever outfit, um, a delivery man comes to the door with flowers and says, this is for Professor McGee. And when she takes the flowers and says, it's for me, he's kind of in shock that the, there's this African American woman living in this neighborhood. He was like, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure you are professor? What? You know, and so, um, uh, she then gets inspired to to write this article, and it was in Huffington Post, I believe, um, where she talks about how all of us have some type of bias in our da- in our daily lives. Whether it's a police officer who goes and 
out and shoots um, a subject who doesn't deserve to be shot right. and kills them, that's one extreme. Or even the flower delivery guy who comes in and is in disbelief. Which I, with, wasn't the flower delivery guy also black? Yes, yes. And and that one of my points really is that you know this sort of inherent, uh, you know, this sort of um, in, uh, bias that exists in all of us is even within our own race that. Um, uh, that, that we're just taught that, you know, maybe this black lady cannot be a professor and cannot be living in this neighborhood. Yeah. So um, what she has explored, and it's still being studied, and it's still under research, but she seems to have certain results that make her believe that this might be helpful, is that mindfulness meditation, um, by raising awareness of racism and then doing meditation practices, uh, creates a, I mean, it's not a cure, it's not It's not the answer to uh, bias and, and uh, racism, space bias, but it definitely helps to stop and think. It's To me, it sounds like a pause. You know, it. Um, what she calls it, she, first of all, she says colorblindness versus um, mindfulness. She says that we're actually not colorblind. We had the guest... So um, interesting yeah, that this article BJ came out right Abron, after a couple weeks ago who talked about colorblind li- laws, and this is so true, is that to think that we're colorblind is is the worst premise we can start with because we are not colorblind. I know that Chelsea's white. She knows that I'm kind of white, brown, whatever. Um, you know, we know I'm not what fully we are. white, although I look white. See, there, there's yeah, another bias. That's another bias. Yeah, you're Hispanic. So anyway, so so it's like we have these things. So to say we're colorblind is is a, a, a fallacy. So we have to start with the premise that we're not. Since we're not, we have to raise awareness of race bias and then do these practices, and she calls it color insight practices. So our question to you is, you know, and I have to say, it sounds a little hokey to me. That's what I thought some people would say. It's some, some new age freaky weird thing that right. we're going to start doing but i got to speak out in defense of it because there's been a lot of science uh over a long time mostly in the last couple of decades um that's finding that these mindfulness practices and meditation will help people focus and get greater control over their emotions and increase their capacity to think clearly and mm-hmm. act with purpose, especially in the moment. I so, think any kind of, I think people that meditate generally tend to pause before they act. So and, what and, is yeah. the harm? I right. think it's a great idea, but we want to hear from you. Do you think it's a hokey idea, waste of time, or should we give it a shot? Yeah, do you think it might help with race bias? So you can tweet me at, at Azari Law. At Chelsea Galicia. And, uh, Either way, whether you tweet us on this or not, please keep the dialogue going during the week. We love to hear from you, so please find us on iTunes and YouTube. Click like, post your comments, post your feedback, and we will get right back to you. And we will. And see don't you- forget podcast survey. Yep, podcast we- one. We will see you next week Dot right com. here on Justice Is Served. Bye bye. From producers Maria Menounos, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire BHL crew, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I'm your BHL announcer, Scipio. Instagram me at Planet Scipio. Thank you for tuning in. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.